So Philip mentioned one of the verses that I wanted to cover, and thankfully he didn't end up doing his devotions on it. I'm not surprised. Um, there are these verses that we constantly go to, and you know, there's a reason why we use them all the time. So I'm going to have you turn to Romans 1, starting at, um, let me see here, start at verse 20. For the invisible things of Him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even His eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Because of that, when they knew God, they glorified Him not as God, neither were thankful, but became vain in their imaginations, and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing themselves to be wise, they became fools, and changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like to corruptible man, and to birds and four-footed beasts and creeping things. Wherefore, God also gave them up to uncleanness through the lust of their own hearts to dishonor their own bodies between themselves, who changed the truth of God into a lie and worshiped and served the creature more than the Creator who is blessed forever. Amen. <clears throat> so here we have um, uh, the Apostle Paul saying, The invisible things of Him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made. We're the things that are made. And it says here that we can clearly see the invisible things of Him. I believe the New King James says God's attributes. We can see His attributes. And so we have a promise that we can see God in creation. And so that's what we're going to be talking about today. That the things that show us that creation makes sense. It's not just um, a bunch of stories that some shepherds in the Middle East a couple thousand years ago came up with, it actually makes sense. And there are things that man has been able to discover using science that shows that it makes sense. And the interesting thing is, is there are even secular scientists that have made many, many discoveries that have backed up creation. And I'll speak about some of those later. <clears throat> also, I'm not going to go over this, but the next couple verses after verse 20, it talks about what happens when people don't glorify God and acknowledge Him as Creator. Um, Professing themselves to be wise, they became fools. There are many people in the world today, scientists, that they're very intelligent. Don't let anybody tell you otherwise. They're very smart. I'm sure their IQ is much higher than mine. But they don't have the Spirit of God in their hearts. They believe they're wise. They believe they know everything that there is to know, but they don't. There are things that cannot be measured with uh, instruments, cannot be seen with telescopes. Um, you can only see those things in God's Word. Now I'd like you to also turn your Bibles to Genesis 1, verse 6. <clears throat> and God said, Let there be a firmament in the midst of the waters, and let it divide the waters from the waters. And God made the firmament and divided the waters which were under the firmament from the waters which were above the firmament, and it was so. And God called the firmament heaven, and the evening and morning were the second day. And God said, Let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place, and let the dry land appear, and it was so. And God called the dry land earth, and the gathering together of the waters called he seas, and God saw that it was good. So here we have the creation account, which many of us are familiar with. Um, is talking about there being waters. And what sticks out to me is verse 6, and God said, let there be a firmament in the waters, in the midst of the waters, and let it divide the waters from the waters. So we're talking about water here. And water is something that we very often take for granted. Um, about 70% of the earth is covered in water. It's just all around us. Um, about... 70 or so percent of our body weight is actually made up of water. And so we just don't think much about it. You could, all, you could maybe say that it's invisible. It's an invisible thing. But there, is many, there are many things in the water molecule that make it interesting, the point toward a creator. So we'll be looking at that right now. First of all, to understand many properties of the water molecule, you have to understand a little bit about its chemistry. So I'll try to break this down for those of you all that didn't take chemistry in school. Um, 
Water is what's called a polar molecule. Polar just means that it's charged. One side of the molecule is positive, one side is negative. Now that doesn't seem like that would be that important. I mean, positive, negative. But it, um, it greatly affects the properties of water. So I'm going to talk a few, um, about a few of those. <clears throat> so these positive and negative ends of the water molecule they attract each other. So the positive end of one water molecule attracts the negative end of another water molecule. And they attract each other. That's called um, a hydrogen bond. And there are hydrogen bonds all through nature. They're very important in... Um, they hold together our DNA. They are very important in um, the proteins that make up our bodies, make up our cells. Um, and water is, is part of that. First of all, the boiling point of water. You know, we take it for granted. You know, the boiling point of water is 212 degrees Celsius. Um, sorry, 212 degrees Fahrenheit, 100 degrees Celsius, and 32 degrees Fahrenheit, zero degrees Celsius. That is just that's just what it is. We don't think about it. But what's interesting is that it has a very unusual boiling point. Most other molecules that are similar to water, uh, for instance, hydrogen sulfide, which is um, very noxious smelling gas. Um, if you look at the periodic table, you would think that water would actually have a um, lower boiling point than hydrogen sulfide, but it doesn't. So hydrogen sulfide has a boiling point of negative 76 degrees Fahrenheit. So across almost the entire earth, hydrogen sulfide is a gas, it's not a liquid. Um, and so if water was like hydrogen sulfide, if it didn't have these hydrogen bonds that hold water molecules together, there wouldn't be almost, there'd be almost no liquid water on Earth at all. It would just be gaseous. And liquid water is what our bodies use to, you know, it's, it's, it's necessary for life. In fact, if, if astronomers, scientists, whatever, if they're trying to um, look for life on other planets, the first thing they look for is liquid water. They say, follow the water, because they know that it's necessary for life. And if it wouldn't be for this, these charged areas on the water molecule and these hydrogen bonds, um, we could not live because you know, all the water in our body would just instantly turn into, into gas. And that wouldn't, yeah, life would not be possible. So the boiling point is pretty important. Also, water is what's called a universal solvent. Um, it dissolves things very well. Well, what does that have to do with anything? Well, um, our blood is mostly made up of water, and it carries uh, many things through our body, salts, sugar, proteins, different things like that. Um, you know, our blood is what transports all these things to all the parts of our body. It keeps our cells alive. If water could not dissolve all these substances, then our water couldn't transport these substances to our cells. So that's another reason um, why water is a unique substance. Another thing that we very much take for granted is that water, when it freezes, it actually expands. Almost all other substances, when they go from a liquid to a solid, they get smaller. And well, what does that matter? Well, if you take um, something that's liquid and something that's solid, and the thing that's solid is smaller, it's more dense, if you drop it in the liquid, it would drop to the bottom. So imagine what would happen if water was like that. If water froze, what would the ice do? It would sink to the bottom of the pond. Then the top of the pond would be exposed to the cold air. That would freeze. That would then drop to the bottom of the pond and so on and so forth until the pond would be completely full of ice. And of course, that's not conducive to um, fish and other animals like that that live in the water. Um, the ice gives you an insulating layer to protect the water from uh, the cold above it. So that's interesting. Um, and that's something that we just totally take for granted. I remember one time in chemistry class, I was talking with some students, and there was a chemistry question, and it said, if you would take a cube 
of frozen alcohol and drop it in liquid alcohol, what would happen? And my students are so used to ice cubes floating, they said, well, it would float. But what they didn't realize is that water is one of the few substances where the solid form floats. We just take that for granted. Another thing about water is it has a very high specific heat. And here again, that has to go back to hydrogen bonds that I talked about earlier. What that means is it holds a lot of heat. Uh, it takes a lot of energy to heat it up. It um, also takes a lot of heat for it to evaporate. Now, there again, why is that important? Well, 70% of the earth is covered with water. And the fact that water can soak up a lot of heat means that it helps keep the surface of the earth at a moderate temperature. The ocean currents transport heat um, from the equator up to the poles to help keep the poles from being too cold. Um, so, you know, whenever you're by the ocean or by a lake, that temperature tends to be more moderate than if you're in the middle of the continent. And if you've ever been Kansas in the middle of summer or Kansas in the middle of winter, you understand how much the Atlantic Ocean moderates the temperatures um, here in Virginia. Another reason that it works well is it helps your body when you sweat. Um, whenever your sweat evaporates, it, it takes a huge amount of heat energy away from your body. It helps to keep you from getting overheated. And another thing which I ran across in my studies I thought was kind of interesting is it's transparent. And what the reason why that's important is because it allows sunlight to reach ocean plants, uh, algae, different things like that, that then can photosynthesize and produce oxygen. And about um, more than half of the oxygen in the atmosphere is produced by plants and algae in the ocean. So if it wasn't transparent, that wouldn't happen. So these are just a few properties of water that make it so important for life to exist. Um, you know, the question is, could all these properties have arisen by chance? No, I don't believe that they could. Now let's move on to talk about the Earth. <clears throat> we have the water cycle. So first of all, let me back up a little bit. So the Earth... Um, in Isaiah 45:18, For thus saith the Lord that created the heavens, God himself that formed the earth and made it, he hath established it. He created it not in vain, he formed it to be inhabited. I am the Lord and there is none else. So for the next little bit I'm going to be talking about um, properties about the earth that make it suitable for life. One that is one of the most important is it's the right distance from the sun. A little bit too close to the sun, a little bit too far away from the sun. Eventually, we would get too hot and die from overheating, or the oceans would freeze over and it would just be a chunk of ice. So that's very important. Also, the length of the days. There again, something we very much take for granted, you know, the 24 hours. Um, but other planets in the solar system have very different lengths of days. Uh, Venus and Mercury both have days that are uh, hundreds of Earth days long. If the Earth had a rotation that was that slow, um, the side facing the sun would eventually heat up until life couldn't exist, and the side away from the sun would get cold until everything froze and life couldn't exist. So we have this nice, um, you know, going from night to day and back again that helps keep things from getting too hot and keeps them from getting too cold. And another thing about the Earth is its magnetic field. It, the magnetic field helps deflect solar wind uh, to keep from stripping the air away from uh, the atmosphere. The Moon and Mars are both dead. And a great, you know, most of the reason for that is they have no magnetic field. Um, you know, the moon is about the same distance from the sun as the earth is, but it has no atmosphere. And a large reason for that, well, it's smaller and doesn't have enough gravity, but also it doesn't have a magnetic field. Same way with Mars. Um, 
there does seem to be evidence that a long time in the future, or in the, in the past, I should say, um, that Mars did actually have an atmosphere and it did have liquid water, but it didn't have a magnetic field, and so eventually the solar wind stripped away all the atmosphere, and then we have the dead planet that we know today. Also, the magnetic field is slowly decaying. They have measured it pretty accurately for the last uh, couple hundred years, and it seems to be kind of running down. And that points toward uh, that it must be fairly young, a lot younger than the billions of years that many scientists say. So another thing that we take for granted is the atmosphere. You know, we breathe it in each day. Um, it's all around us. Most of the atmosphere is nitrogen. It's an unreactive gas. We breathe it in, it goes into our lungs, it doesn't do anything, we breathe it back out. Then the other 20% of that is oxygen. And it's just the right amount of oxygen, a little bit too much. I've read that just a couple percent more oxygen would make forest fires be you know, twice as likely. Um, it would cause metals and rocks to weather and rust much more quickly. Um, if there's not enough, obviously we need oxygen to survive. And so it's just the right amount of oxygen. Also, a special form of oxygen called ozone is up in the atmosphere, the ozone layer. And the importance of that is it protects us from the dangerous ultraviolet radiation from the sun. It does a very good job of doing this. However, ozone is poisonous. If you have ozone here on Earth, we call it air pollution. Um, if you breathe it in, it's quite dangerous and can drastically shorten your lifespan. But we have this nice layer of ozone up in the atmosphere where it's not down here where we breathe it in and die. Um, it's up there and it protects us and does a very good job of that. We also have carbon dioxide in our atmosphere. Very small amount, but plants need it to produce uh, glucose, which they can then turn into uh, plant matter, which of course then we need for food. So carbon dioxide is necessary. Also, the atmosphere lets sunlight and heat through, but it blocks many of the other dangerous rays. I've already talked about ultraviolet radiation. It also blocks x-rays, gamma rays, uh, many things that are very dangerous. Um, you know, nowadays you hear about you know, people talking about astronauts going to Mars. One of the greatest dangers of going to Mars is the radiation that they are going to experience on the way to and from Mars. Down here on the Earth, we don't have to worry about that because of the atmosphere. There's many details about how it blocks it and everything that I would love to explain to some of you all, but I'm afraid time doesn't allow us to talk about that. Also, the atmosphere protects us from meteorites. Um, you look at the surface of the moon, even with your naked eye you can see it, but if you get a pair of binoculars or a telescope and it's just covered in craters. And those craters are caused by meteorites all the way from really small pieces of dust to very large rocks um, impacting the surface of the moon. But the atmosphere protects us from many of those. All but the very largest meteorites burn up as they hit the atmosphere at great speed. The surface of the moon, um, you know, the astronauts that were on the moon had these very uh, complex spacesuits, and part of the reason was is because they needed to protect themselves from any little bits of dust that might smack into them while they were on the surface of the moon. Of course, we don't have to worry about that down here. Also, another very important part of the atmosphere is it holds in heat. Um, you know, heat comes in during the day, and then during the night, it also holds in heat. You may have noticed on nights that it's cloudy, that it tends not to cool down quite as much. Um, that's the greenhouse effect at work, helping to keep it from these huge swings between heat and cold. Um, on the moon, the surface pointing toward the sun is several hundred degrees, um, about hot enough to boil water. On the side, away from the sun, it's minus a couple hundred degrees. But we don't have that because of the atmosphere. Also, the moon 
The moon is more than just a light in the sky. It has tides. If you've ever been by the ocean, you've seen the tides go in and out. And those are important. They help to stir the ocean, to mix oxygen and nutrients throughout the ocean. If there weren't tides, the ocean would become much more stagnant um, and wouldn't, wouldn't move all those oxygen nutrients. Another thing that the moon does is it helps keep the earth from wobbling too much on its axis. If you've ever played with a top, you get it spinning, and it spins pretty good for a while, and then it starts wobbling like this. That's called precession. And that's the exact same thing that the earth does. But because of the pull of gravity from the moon, it minimizes that to where it doesn't do it very much, and it does it very slowly. If that would happen, you know, much more extreme, if there wasn't a moon... Uh, it's quite possible over a long period of time that the seasons would change drastically. We would have extremely cold, um, you know, the winters would be much, much colder, summers would be much, much hotter, but that's not the case. It helps stabilize the earth. Um, also, there are things in our solar system, way out in our solar system, that help protect us. The planet Jupiter, you can almost think of as kind of a cosmic vacuum sweeper. There are all these meteorites and uh, comets and different things that are whizzing through the solar system. And Jupiter, because of its huge amount of gravity, a lot of times it will um, either eject something out of, the, out of the solar system or it will, that piece of comet or whatever, will actually slam into Jupiter instead of slamming into Earth. Um, even, I think it was maybe 1996, there was part of a comet slammed into Jupiter, and they could watch, you know, astronomers could watch this happen um, using the Hubble Space Telescope, and they could see these giant scars in Jupiter's atmosphere as large as the size of the Earth caused by this comet. If that would have hit the Earth, that would have been probably wiped out all life, but Jupiter protects us from that. The tilt of the Earth gives us our seasons, which allows, uh, it helps to move heat around the globe. If there was no tilt, um, right on the equator would be much, much hotter than it currently is, and the poles would be much colder. But because we have um, the tilt, we have the seasons, and it kind of cycles things to where there are no extreme climates on the Earth. Pretty much everything except the very extreme poles can support life. And of course, our sun... Our sun is a very unique star. Uh, it's not that big. There are stars that are much bigger and much brighter than it. Um, but there are also a lot more stars that are a lot smaller and cooler than the sun. Um, the sun is kind of a medium-sized star. There are also a lot of stars that have other stars orbiting them. And the reason why this can be a problem is because if you have multiple stars orbiting each other, very quickly the planets orbiting those stars can be have unstable orbits and maybe crash into their star, or they're going to have huge swings of climate. There again, um, we have another reason why our climates are as stable as they are, not, as, not that extreme. Of course, if you're in Alberta or if you're in the Sahara Desert, you might think that they're pretty extreme climates, but relatively, they're not that extreme compared to other places in the solar system. The, the sun's out... Uh, the sun's energy output is relatively stable. Many other stars, they vary a huge amount. Um, you know, they get really, really bright, put off a lot of energy. They have these flares that they that put off a lot of radiation, um, and then they get really cold. But the sun is pretty consistent. It stays about the same temperatures the whole time, and that is very important for life. There are astronomers that are looking for life or places that could be conducive to life in other solar systems, around other stars, and there are not that many stars that are as consistent as the sun in the energy output. And one thing that, that doesn't necessarily make uh, life on Earth better is solar eclipses. Um, you know, there's no need for us to have solar eclipses, but it's interesting that the moon is about 400 times smaller than the sun, but the sun is about 400 times further away 
than the moon. And because of that, when everything lines up just right, the moon goes in front of the sun, and you can see the solar corona. And, you know, God is a very creative God. I really wonder if He just decided, you know what, I'm going to give... You know, every now and then I'm just going to give them a really beautiful light show so they can see my glory. So I wonder if maybe that's what He did there. Then moving on to some other aspects of astronomy that point toward God. In Genesis 1... As in the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth, and the earth was without form and void, and darkness was upon the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters, and God said, Let there be light, and there was light. And God saw the light was light, that it was good, and God divided the light from the darkness. So here we have the first few verses from Genesis where God created all light, you could maybe say energy, and matter. He created light and matter from nothing. Um, all of a sudden, he spoke them into existence. Now, science has never been able to find any exceptions to this. They've never been able to... Um, it's actually called the law of conservation of mass energy. And what that means is that the amount of energy and mass in the universe is consistent. They have not seen any... any uh, um, exceptions to this. And so it makes much more sense, you know, since we can't create energy or matter, it makes much more sense that there was a God outside of this, this universe, this, uh, uh, it's outside of this world that was able to create all the mass and energy of the world, rather than everything just coming from nothing. Uh, we've never seen anything come from nothing, so it makes much more sense that something uh, that everything had to come from something. And that something, we believe, is the Creator God. Of course, the secular world has their ideas for how all this mass and energy came into existence. It's oftentimes called the Big Bang Theory. And there's some interesting history about the Big Bang Theory that I'm guessing some of you might, know, uh, might not know. Uh, so before the early 1900s, Many astronomers thought that, you know, the, uh, the universe had always existed in its present state. It had always been there, always existed. Um, it had just always been there. They didn't have any other ideas or explanations for how it could be the way that it was. They just assumed that it always existed. However, there was um, a couple different astronomers, one of them being Edwin Hubble, which the Hubble Space Telescope is named after. He noticed through some... Um, astronomy uh, experiments that he did, he noticed that there were galaxies that were moving away from us. He measured, you know, he looked up in the night sky and he was able to measure how fast these galaxies are moving away from us. And that made him start thinking, if they're moving away from us, then at some point uh, in the past, they must have been together. You know, if you're standing in the middle of something and everything is moving out, at some point, it must have been closer together. Um, you know, if you kind of, in a sense, rewind time. And so they realized that what this implied was something that they didn't want to accept. And that is that all the matter and energy in the universe must have come into existence at, at a certain spot in the universe at one time. Um, and they didn't like this because that implied that there was a moment of creation. And there were some secular scientists that didn't like this idea, and they accused the scientists that came up with this idea and said, we are basically just, you know, you're uh, creationists. You're espousing creationist doctrine, um, uh, creationist ideas. They didn't like this at all. And one of the astronomers, Fred Hoyle, he kind of made fun of this idea, and he called it the Big Bang. He was making fun of it, called it the Big Bang, and somehow the name stuck. That's what it's called to this day. But, so even though there were many astronomers that didn't like this idea that there was a moment of creation, even though they didn't necessarily believe it was God that did the creation, but they, it seemed like there was a moment where everything was created, um, they could try to come up with a lot of other ideas. And a lot of those ideas were pretty far out there and eventually uh, were fairly debunked, and so 
there didn't seem to be any other alternative. The best alternative they had was at some point in the past, there had been a moment of creation, which they call the Big Bang. They still don't, uh, they still aren't willing to attribute this to God, but it's interesting how that secular astronomy moved, in a sense, closer to what we believe. I found that interesting. So, to wrap this up, all these things do point toward a creator, toward a designer, the many uh, characteristics of water, the characteristics of the earth that make it suitable for being inhabited. Um, but we can't base our belief on just that. Um, really, when it comes down to it, what we need to do is believe what it says in the Bible, that it's the inherent, the inerrant Word of God, and that it tells us what is true. Um, we can't base our faith or our belief on man's ideas, on creationist theories, uh, ideas of how things might have happened. Because what happens if somebody comes up with something that debunks your pet theory? Is your faith going to be in shambles? I hope not. These things point toward a creator. They give us hope or... Um, not exactly sure what the right word to use there. They show us that there must have been a creator, but we can't base our faith on that. That's all I have. Greetings in the name of Jesus, the one by whom all things were made, and without him was not anything made that was made. Please turn to Psalm 8. In the evening sky... To the south, there's a bright star that shines, and that bright star is the planet Jupiter, which has already been mentioned. And the width of Jupiter is over 11 times the width of the Earth, and the mass of Jupiter is over 300 times the mass of the Earth. Now, although Jupiter is quite large, the Sun is much larger. The mass of the Sun is over 1,000 times the mass of Jupiter. Now, the sun's extremely bright, but there are stars that are much brighter than the sun. Uh, for example, the brightest star at the feet of Orion uh, may be around 40,000 or 50,000 times brighter than the sun. And the reason it doesn't look that bright to us is because it is so far away. And as we consider the impressive objects that God has made, it's good for us to consider these words of David in Psalm 8, start reading at verse... Three, when I consider thy heavens, the work of thy fingers, the moon and the stars which thou hast ordained, what is man that thou art mindful of him, and the son of man that thou visitest him? For thou hast made him a little lower than the angels, and hast crowned him with glory and honor. So as we think about the amazing characteristics of the work of God's fingers, it should make sense to us that an awesome God created the universe. O Lord, our Lord, how excellent is thy name in all the earth. Now the planet Jupiter does not stay at one spot in the sky. It moves relative to the other stars. It takes Jupiter nearly 12 years uh, to travel its path through the sky. And since Jupiter moves relative to the other stars, uh, People who lived many years ago, would have some of them would have referred to it as a wandering star because of how it wanders through the sky. And ancient peoples noticed several other wandering stars, uh, which we would call Mercury, Venus, Mars, and Saturn. And today we call these objects planets. And currently the planet Saturn is visible uh, to the east of Jupiter in the evening sky. Now Jupiter moves more rapidly than Saturn, and in December of 2020, a Jupiter will go past Saturn in the sky. Now, the ancients were puzzled by the motions of these wandering stars. As they would go through the sky, sometimes they would go backwards. And so what was going on? Well, man is created, was created in the image of God, and man has a sense that there is order in the universe. And so people tried to give an orderly explanation for the motions of these stars, and there was 
various ideas out there. One idea was that everything revolved around the earth. Another idea was that uh, the wandering stars and the earth uh, orbited the sun. And so which idea was correct? Uh, by introducing complexities into these ideas, uh, both systems of thought were able to come up with predictions that were fairly accurate. But both, both ideas had problems. And then Galileo looked at Jupiter uh, through a telescope, and he saw little stars next to Jupiter. And he hadn't seen these stars before. And then as he continued to observe Jupiter night after night, these stars moved back and forth relative to Jupiter. And as Jupiter moved through the sky, the stars moved with it. And so since these little stars moved with Jupiter, then they must be moons that went around Jupiter. Just as the Earth has a moon that goes around it, so Jupiter has moons that go around it. And if you have binoculars, you can watch these moons go around Jupiter if you are patient enough to watch Jupiter night after night. And so the motion of the moons of Jupiter showed that there are objects in the universe that do not go around the Earth. And those moons, along with other observations, help to demonstrate that it is not correct that everything goes around the Earth. But again, the, the idea that everything went around the sun still had problems. Astronomers tried to use circles to describe motions. But finally, one astronomer realized that another type of curve would do a better job. And so he was able to come up with a better explanation for the motions of these wandering stars. And the, the curve that he used was a geometrical design that the Greeks had studied before the time of Christ. And so this astronomer discovered mathematical order in the motions of the wandering stars. And the universe is orderly. That order is not always obvious. It may take some searching uh, to find that order. And the best explanation for that order is a supernatural creator. And he designed the universe in such a way that we can discover at least some of that order that he has put into it. Some people who have not accepted the plain teaching of the Bible have puzzled over the fact that we are able to understand the order in the universe. One scientist wrote, The enormous usefulness of mathematics in the natural sciences is something bordering on the mysterious. So the mathematical order in the universe was a puzzle to him. And he also wrote, It is not at all natural that laws of nature exist, much less that man is able to discover them. Now, why did he have these ideas? Well, it was because he held on to false ideas. Listen to something else he wrote. Certainly, it is hard to believe that our reasoning power was brought by Darwin's process of natural selection to the perfection which it seems to possess. Yes, that would be hard to believe. Thankfully, we don't need to believe Darwin. We can believe God, who has made us in his image. God has made us a little lower than the angels, and he has given us the ability to have at least a partial understanding of his orderly creation. And so since the Lord is a God of order, it makes perfect sense that laws of nature exist. And since God created the universe and he created man, who is in the universe, it makes perfect sense that man is able to understand in part of what God has made. But listen to one more thing this puzzled scientist wrote. The miracle of the appropriateness of the language of mathematics for the formulation of the laws of physics is a wonderful gift. Now, this man, I think, would have professed to have been an atheist, but he was correct that it is a wonderful gift, and it is a wonderful gift from God. Now, for those of us who believe what the Bible says, it makes sense that we are able to understand in part what God has made. Albert Einstein did not believe the Bible, and he wrote, One should expect the world to be chaotic, not to be grasped by thought in any way. Although his flawed belief system led to that conclusion, it appears that he seemed to have an inner understanding that the universe is ultimately orderly. Uh, to another scientist who was also a friend with whom he disagreed, he wrote these words, You believe in the God who plays dice, and I in complete law and order 
in a world which objectively exists. And so in spite of his wrong beliefs, he seemed to have an inner understanding that there is order in the universe. And for those of us who believe the Bible, that makes sense. There is much evidence of order in the universe, and we see some of that order in the planets and in their moons. The moons of Jupiter move in such an orderly way that they have been used as a clock. Years ago, when people would travel by boat, you know, they could observe the sun and stars and determine what time it was at their location, but they did not have a good way of determining what time it was at home. And this was before the invention of quality uh, clocks or watches that could keep good time on a ship that's being rocked by stormy weather, also before their discovery of radio waves that they could use to transmit time information. And so some people learned to take along a telescope to observe the moons of Jupiter. Now, that doesn't work very well on the on a deck of a boat. But once they reached land, they could set up a telescope and watch what Jupiter's moons were doing. And if they also brought along information about what the moons of Jupiter were supposed to do at certain times, according to clocks in their homeland, then they could figure out what time it was in their homeland. And using that information, they were then able to determine where they were on the Earth. Because once they know what time it is in their homeland, they can use their local time, which they get by observing the sun or the stars, and they can use that to calculate how far east or west they had traveled. And also then by observing stars such as the North Star, they could determine how far north or south they had traveled. And so they wanted to know where they were on the Earth, and so they could use the moons of Jupiter uh, to help them out in that. Now, as I said, when people are on a ship, uh, trying to watch Jupiter through a telescope doesn't work the best. And so sometimes they would observe the motion of the Earth's moon as it moved relative to the stars. And explorers and surveyors could also use that method if they didn't want to haul along a telescope. And, but Thomas Jefferson seemed to think that observing the moons of Jupiter uh, could produce more reliable results than observing the motion of the Earth's moon. Because the Earth's moon d doesn't move doesn't move as fast as Jupiter's moons move, at least as some of them do. So our Creator is a God of order, and we should be thankful for the order in the universe. And so if we believe the Bible, this order makes perfect sense. This order teaches us about the Creator, so will we order our lives according to the instructions He has given us. So whether we observe large things or small things, creation makes sense. Consider, for example, our muscles. Our muscles have lots of tiny fibers, and tiny fingers on one type of fiber will reach out and connect to another fiber and pull on it, and it, that's essentially a type of motor that converts chemical energy to mechanical energy. And lots of these little motors work together to make our muscles work. And also, there's a motor that transports cargo in the cells of our bodies. Uh, for example, some nerve cells are quite long, and a substance that's made in one part of the cell needs to be transported to another part, there's little tiny motors that have two feet, and they walk along little tiny fibers uh, to transport cargo. And then there's electric motors that rotate. Now, that's right, you have spinning electric motors inside of you. Uh, animals have spinning electric motors inside of them. Plants have spinning electric motors inside of them. A blade of grass might look simple but it has spinning electric motors in it. And these motors are extremely small. Uh, the average distance a fingernail grows in 10 seconds is the approximate width of one of these motors. And the purpose of these motors is to recycle a special chemical that is used as a source of energy in cells. And when it provides energy for a process, a tiny group of atoms breaks off of this chemical, and then one of these spinning electric motors can uh, add a tiny group of atoms back onto the chemical so it can again provide more energy. And through a complex series of steps, the food that we eat and the oxygen we breathe helps to supply the energy that runs these motors. And so as we consider these motors, it should be clear that someone designed them. Supernatural creation makes sense. So the design in these motors is obvious if we're willing to see it. One of the men who helped to discover the structure of DNA by the name of Francis Crick, 
Uh, he made a statement that is astounding. I want you to listen to what he said or wrote. Biologists must constantly keep in mind that what they see was not designed, but rather evolved. Thankfully, we don't need to travel down that path. We don't need to try to convince ourselves that motors are not designed. We can accept the obvious truth of creation makes sense. And if we observe people uh, refusing to accept what's obvious, it should serve as a warning to us. You know, as we read the Bible, do we ever come to a passage of Scripture we'd rather not believe? So will we accept what's obvious? There's a number of tricks we can try to play on ourselves if we don't want to believe a passage. One thing we might do is try to convince ourselves that a passage of Scripture is difficult to understand. A century ago, a teacher by the name of John Wayland wrote a book with the title, Christ as a Teacher. And in that book he wrote, The things we do not wish to believe are always hard to understand. Now that might be an exaggeration, uh, but it does point out one of the weaknesses of our fallen human nature. And if we refuse to accept truth, then we may speculate about strange ideas. For example, consider this scientist who helped to discover the structure of DNA and who wrote, biologists must constantly keep in mind that what they see was not designed but rather evolved. It appears that he realized that it was extremely improbable for life to arrive by natural processes on the earth. And so he speculated about life coming to earth from somewhere else in the universe. He even speculated about life coming here in a rocket ship sent by an alien civilization. In contrast to such speculation, creation makes sense. So, you know, this scientist, he studied DNA, which is an amazing substance. It contains lots of information. It contains instructions for making many different proteins. I consider, for example, the motors in living things. You know, God designed those motors, and in the beginning, he placed instructions for making those motors in DNA. And then these living things are able to pass those instructions on to their offspring. And so we should remember instructions do not appear by natural processes. Instructions are written by someone. And for a creature to pass these instructions onto its offspring, those instructions need to be copied. And so the creator designed copying machines that copy DNA. So that's right, you do have copying machines inside of you. Now, they don't operate like a Xerox machine, but they do a good job of copying DNA. It's very rare for these machines to make a mistake. And if they do make a mistake, there's a repair machine that searches the DNA for mistakes in it and corrects the mistakes most of the time. We do live in a fallen world, and occasionally a mistake is not corrected. It has been estimated that the copying machine and the repair machine working together are able to make a copy that's accurate 99.9999999% of the time. I want you to listen to what one secular textbook says. Given the demands for accuracy during DNA replication and the lengths to which cells go to achieve this process, it is not surprising that cells have also evolved elaborate protein machines to scan the finished product for mistakes. In contrast to such a view, supernatural design of these elaborate protein machines makes perfect sense. In the beginning, God placed these machines in living organisms, and he also placed instructions in the DNA on how to make these machines. And he designed the cells in living things so that they could copy these instructions as cells divide to make more cells. And so DNA contains instructions for making things. It contains instructions for making spinning electric motors. It contains instructions for making motors that make muscles work. It contains instructions for making machines that copy DNA. And it contains instructions for making elaborate machines that repair mistakes in DNA. And for these instructions to be of any use, there needs to be a machine that can read those instructions and do what the instructions say. When the instructions on a portion of DNA need to be read, a first a special machine makes a temporary copy of these instructions onto something called RNA, and then the information in the RNA is read by the machine that makes whatever needs to be made. 
And because of this wise design, one piece of DNA can be the source of many RNA copies, and each RNA copy can be read by many machines that produce whatever needs to be produced, and the result can be a very rapid production rate. And so it should be clear to us that the Creator designed this sophisticated production system. A creation makes sense. Now, some cells in our body make hair. Others make bone. And both types of cells contain the same instructions in the DNA. How can that be? Well, there's information outside of the DNA that controls how the DNA is read. And that important concept should impress us with the wisdom of the Creator. As we consider how the cells in a creature, different cells can turn different portions of DNA on or off, should impress us with the fact that creation makes sense. One of the amazing features of DNA is it packs a lot of information into a tiny space. Most of the cells in your body contain DNA from both your mother and your father. Uh, your red blood cells would be one exception to that. They don't have any DNA in them. But most of the DNA that's in a cell is stored inside a tiny ball that's called the nucleus. Now, not only does this nucleus contain DNA, it also contains machines for correcting mistakes in DNA. It contains machines for copying the information on DNA. And so the nucleus does much more than store DNA. And the nucleus is smaller than a grain of sand. Uh, normally, the human eye is not able to see something that is as small as the nucleus. And if all of the DNA in the nucleus were connected uh, to form a single strand, it would be a really thin strand that is over six feet long. Uh, somehow that DNA is efficiently stored in the nucleus and some specialized proteins help in this. And so as we consider this compact storage method, creation makes sense. Uh, theoretically, the DNA in the nucleus of a human cell uh, could store over a gigabyte of information. That is, it could store over a billion bytes of information. And all of this DNA is inside of a little ball that's smaller than a grain of sand. Now think a little bit about how information is stored on a CD or a DVD. Those discs store information on a spiral track. On a standard CD, the spiral track is around three and a half miles long and stores less than a gigabyte of information. A DVD stores information more efficiently, and a standard DVD, uh, the track is around seven and a half miles long and can store between four and five gigabytes of information. And if information could be stored by using DNA, a spiral of DNA on a similar size disk, uh, the length of the spiral of DNA uh, could be over a thousand miles long and store a million gigabytes of information. And so as we consider the astounding storage capacity of DNA, a truly creation makes sense. One article says that DNA's simple and elegant structure seems to be the work of an accomplished sculptor. Then it goes on to say that it is the result of random chemical reactions in a simmering primordial stew. In contrast to such thinking, supernatural creation of DNA makes perfect sense. So whether we look at small things or whether we look at large things, creation makes sense. O oh Lord, our Lord, how excellent is thy name in all the earth.